God has given us a beautiful day to come together and worship Him, and we're just thankful for your presence. I know that on this holiday weekend, we have many visitors in our midst. Have you, have you ever received a comment and thought, was that a compliment or not? Has somebody ever said something to you and you thought, I don't know how to take that? Uh, did they mean that to be complimentary or was that sort of an underhanded insult? I'm thinking about the lady who once told the preacher in the lobby, you know what, each sermon you preach is better than your next one. Y'all think about that. It sounds like a compliment on the surface, but I'm pretty sure that it's not. Some, uh, there was one time when somebody came up to me and said, here's a personal example. You remind me of Joel Osteen. They said this to me. And I don't <laughs> I don't remember who this was. I don't remember if it was out here in the lobby. If it was you, then I forgive you. Uh, unless you meant it as a compliment, then I thank you. But I don't I, I to this day, I didn't ask for further explanation to this day. I'm not quite sure what this person meant. They could not have meant his hair. Because this guy has a fantastic head of hair. And my hairline is receding faster than an ocean tide. I mean, my, my forehead is starting to look like a small state. And my dad is here today, and if you take one look at him, you know that I have no hope for the future when it comes to hair. So it couldn't have been the hair. And it couldn't have been the smile. I mean, if you've seen this guy on TV... He smiles all the time. I don't smile that much. I bet at the end of the day, his face hurts. I bet he has to rest it to recover. And it can't be this, it can't be his dress either. I mean, this suit, it looks like Mr. Joel Osteen has been to Brooks Brothers or somewhere to buy this suit. I mean, the only reason I would go into a Brooks Brothers is to ask, where's the nearest JCPenney, okay? That's not a place that I shop. And I hope that this person didn't, wasn't speaking theologically. Because if you've ever watched Joel Osteen on TV before, you know that he goes a little too far in the direction of preaching a health and wealth and prosperity gospel. You name your blessing and you claim it through Jesus Christ. I think what he proclaims on a regular basis resembles more like a self-help book than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I hope they weren't speaking about my theology However, there is one thing that I like about Joel Osteen and what he does in front of the Lakewood Church in the old Houston Rockets Stadium. Before he begins his message, I don't know if you've ever seen his program before, he gets everybody to hold up their Bible and they say this statement. I've got it up here on the screen. Everybody says it together. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess, my mind is alert, my heart is receptive, I will never be the same. I am about to receive the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living seed of the Word of God. I will never be the same. Never, never, never. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody says that. And if somebody wanted to compare that statement to me, I would take that as a compliment. Because I like that. I can get behind that because I believe that about the Bible. Do you, do you believe that this book is the word of God? 
I believe, well, that was pretty lame. I'll just assume that you thought yes to yourself, okay? I believe that this doesn't just contain the Word of God. I believe this doesn't just become the Word of God if I read it in a certain way. I believe with all my heart, with all my strength, with all my mind that this is God's Word. Amen? And standing at the center of this book is one man. Right at the heart of it. But of course, as you know, he's more than just a man. He's the long-awaited Messiah, the one the Jews had been longing for, the Christ. He is the Son of God. He claims that for himself. And he is even more than that. He is the Word, capital W, who was with God in the beginning, who was God, the Word made flesh, tabernacling among us. He is God himself in human form. At the center of this book. And everything that happens before points ahead to him. The New Testament teaches us to read the Old Testament through Christ, Jesus Christ, a Jesus Christ lens. And we begin to see as we go back that all of the hopes and dreams and longings of, of God's people from Genesis to Malachi, they're all looking forward to Jesus. They're all fulfilled in Jesus. And everything that comes after him in this book looks back to him. The church is established upon the bedrock foundation of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed far and wide. He's at the center of this book. But he's also at the center of history as well. We declare Jesus actually lived and walked on this earth. In fact, we mark time by him. That is the way that we have established our time. There is the time before Christ and the time after Christ. We can be confident that he really, he really did live. This theory, maybe you've heard it floating around, that Jesus never even existed in history. It's only been around since the late 1700s, which is not really that long in the grand scheme of things. And it's even more of a fringe theory now than it was back then. An overwhelming number of scholars, you could even say virtually all serious scholars, believe that Jesus did exist as a historical figure. Now, they're not going to believe everything that he claims about himself. They're not going to believe every miracle that he performed, everything written about him in the Gospels. But most, if not all, serious intellectual individuals believe that he did actually live. The evidence speaks loud and clear. For instance, there's no indication that writers in antiquity who opposed Christianity questioned the existence of Jesus. Those writers in ancient times who challenged the Christian gospel, they never once said, we don't believe that this man ever even lived. You think if there was a shred of evidence that this Jesus figure didn't even live, that they would be trumpeting that to all their listeners. They never did. The Jewish historian Josephus mentions Jesus in a book written 60 years or so after his death. He was not a Christian. The Roman historian Tacitus referred to he who called Christus and his execution under Pontius Pilate in a book written in 116 AD. And since Tacitus, the, Rome, uh, the uh, Roman takes a very negative tone about Christianity, it's extremely unlikely that a Christian would forge that writing in order to bolster the faith of the church. No Christian would speak as negatively about Christianity as Tacitus does. Tacitus affirms 
that there was such a man named Jesus. History attests to Jesus' existence. And we must reckon with that. We must reckon with the fact that he lived. And I'm not just talking about you people here today, people of faith. All people the world over, whether they realize it or not, have to reckon with the existence of this man named Jesus Christ and the claims that he made for himself and the compelling evidence that he rose from the dead and how the New Testament describes his identity. Claims like this that John the Baptist made when he saw Jesus strolling along and knew that his ministry was over. He said, behold, in John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 29, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here he is, the Christ, the Son of the living God, God in the flesh, the one with the power to remove sins from all humanity for all who come in faith to him. We've got to reckon with that. We've got to decide whether we believe that or not. Everybody. And we've also got to decide whether we're going to live like we believe that we do not get a choice. We have to make a choice when it comes to Jesus Christ. And the question that we all face, people, people everywhere face this question, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? And maybe you're sitting out there and you thought, well, I've already answered that question. I've already decided what I'm going to do with Jesus. I made that choice years ago. I, just, I want you to put that aside for a minute. And I don't want you to think about this person sitting over here in the auditorium or that person over there. I want you to think about you. Your heart. I want you to examine yourself. And hear this question as if you've never heard it before. As if you're hearing it for the first time. With fresh ears and a fresh heart. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Will he be your Savior and Lord? Will you repent of your sins? Will you confess his name before men? Will you be baptized into his death so that you can receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life? And then will you submit your life to his lordship because Jesus is not just Savior, he's also Lord. And if he's going to be our Savior, he must also be our Lord. Are you going to then walk in a way that pleases him? Doing works, as Paul says, that are in keeping, that are in step with your penitent heart? What will you do with Jesus? Will he be your Savior and Lord? Or won't he? Listen, I know y'all have got a lot on your mind. You've had a big weekend. You've got all sorts of plans. You've got family in. You're doing something with friends today or tomorrow. I'm telling you folks, let me just say it as clearly as I can. This is the most consequential decision that you'll ever face. This is the most important question that you will ever answer. This is life or death. This right here. Put everything else aside. This is what matters. Now and for eternity. What will you do with Jesus? As you know, some have rejected him throughout history. Some have just said, no. Will he be your Savior and Lord or not? And some have said, or not. Now, I don't think any of you would say that. Because, you know, you're here at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. 
to spend an hour in worship or more, depending on how long the preacher goes. And this is the holiday weekend, and there's all kinds of things that you could be doing. So I don't think that we, I hope that we don't have the sorts of people here who would just say no to Jesus' face, who would just reject him outright. I think about the Jews, God's historic people from the Old Testament, the Jews. What does the Bible say about how the Jews responded to Jesus? In John chapter 1, verse 11, it, it is the, one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Let me just read it to you. John chapter 1, 11, how did the Jews, the Israelites, God's people from the Old Testament respond to Jesus? He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. His own people did not receive him. They rejected him. Have you ever been rejected? Rejection's a part of human life, right? I remember in high school, there was this girl in a math class. She was a year older than me. I thought she was kind of cute. And not as cute as my wife that I ended up with, but this is before her. I just want to make that clear. Uh, I thought she was kind of cute, so I, I, I mustered up enough courage, I'm going to ask her out. So I found her in the hallway by her locker. And I went up to her, and I said, hey, I'm not going to say her name, because y'all will probably look her up on Facebook or something, a bunch of creeps. But uh, so... In order to, you know, protect her identity, I'm going to withhold her name from you. I went up to her and I said, hey, uh, would you like to go out with me, you know, on a date? And she said, I don't think so. Rejection. Do you know rejection? In that moment, I felt so, huh. get, get all your laughter out, okay? Just get it out. I felt so deflated. So defeated. Rejection. And yet none of us can scarcely imagine the rejection that Jesus felt. Having come to the people that God wanted to use him in order to save. In order to redeem. And they said no thanks. They rejected him. That was the whole part of, that was the a big part of the plan. Redeem Israel and through Israel save the entire world. And they said no, most of them. Rejected him outright. No, thank you. You wouldn't do that. Jesus, you wouldn't reject him. You wouldn't slam the door in his face. If Jesus showed up to your house this afternoon and he wanted to come in, you would open the door to him. You would invite him to have a seat. You'd make him a cup of coffee. You'd chat with him. You wouldn't slam the door in his face. What about Judas? Judas Iscariot. Mama, one of the greatest tragedies of the Bible. Judas, one of the twelve, one of the apostles, named among Peter and James and John and Andrew and Thaddeus and Philip and all the rest. Judas, handpicked by Jesus to follow him around, to be sent out to spread the message that salvation had come. Judas, who was there, and he heard Jesus preach, and he saw him perform miracles. And he, Judas approached those Jewish religious leaders and asked if he could be of service in destroying Jesus. 
and sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Plunged a knife into the back of his loins. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is there with the others praying, it was Judas who came up and he had already told the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, the one whom I kissed, that's the one, that's Jesus. And he goes up to him and he, and he says, greetings, rabbi. Like he's still a friend. Like he's still on Jesus' team. And kisses his cheek. Betrays him. Sends him to the cross. You're not like that. You wouldn't do that. I'll look out here today. I don't see, any, I don't see anybody capable of doing what Judas Betraying our Lord. What about Saul? Saul, before he experienced the vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Saul, who stood by as the early Christian leader Stephen was stoned to death. He, he said, you know, put your coats right here. I'll keep your coats while you kill that man preaching the gospel. Consented to his death threw Christians in prison, ravaged the church, worked his way through all sorts of villages and towns, persecuting Christians, throwing them in prison. We don't have anybody like that out here today. People who would overtly oppose the faith from being spread. All these rejected Christ. I don't think you would. I think that people like us, me and you, people who come to church, people who profess faith, I think people like us are more likely to take the Felix approach. The Felix approach. Have you heard of Felix? If you're a pretty astute Bible student, maybe you've heard of Felix. He was the Roman governor of Judea, before whom Paul... We just talked about Saul, but after he saw the light and was converted to the Christian faith, we start calling him Paul about that time when he had to appear before this man, Felix, as the governor of Judea. Paul was arrested in a city called Caesarea for preaching the gospel, had to stand before him. And when he does, Paul, when he does, he provides a defense of himself and he proclaims the gospel boldly in this man's presence who is not a Jew, who is not a Christian, and I want you to look at how he responds. And it may be helpful for you to grab a Bible and open it up just real quick to Acts chapter 24, starting at verse 22. Acts 24, 22. Look at what the scriptures say about his response. After having heard Paul's presentation of the gospel... The scripture says, Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, capital W, which is what they called the Christian movement at that time. So, first of all, he knew about it. He had accurate knowledge of it. He knew who Jesus was. He knew who he claimed to be. He knew the basic teachings of the early Christians. He had knowledge. And look at what else. In verse 24... After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, a Jewish woman. Maybe that's how Felix knew about the Christian gospel. He sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. 
I don't know any other reason why this official would send for a prisoner, Paul, except that he found something appealing about what Paul was saying. I can't think of any other reason except that he was attracted to it. He wanted to hear more. And so he gets Paul to come into his presence and he listens to Paul tell him more about his faith in Jesus Christ. So he knows and he wants to hear more. And and look at this, verse 25. And he reasoned. He's thinking about it. He's thinking about it. The scriptures here say, that he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, and he was alarmed, and, and look here at what he does. I've got it up here on the screen. He says, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. What do you hear in that? I hear in that fear. I think Felix is thinking, I'm getting a little too close to being obedient to the gospel, and it makes me afraid. And so leave my presence, Paul, and when I get ready to talk with you more about it, I'll come and get you. I think maybe we've got people like that here today. You know about Jesus. You've heard the gospel. You you listen to it on a regular basis because you're here in the pew. And you think about it, you do. You know the right thing for you to do is to be baptized into Jesus Christ. You can see what's amiss in your life and you know you need to rededicate yourself to the Lord. But you respond like Felix. The thought of making a step of faith, of making a decision, makes you scared. It makes you nervous. And so you say to everything, I need to step away for a minute. Or I might actually do something that will change my life. Get away from me for a second. And, and I'll think about it some more, and when I have an opportunity, I'll come back to it. The sad thing is, we don't know if Felix ever got around to doing anything about it. About doing anything about what he knew, what he heard, and what he thought about. And I think we've got people like that here. I think we've got people here who dabble a little bit in Jesus. We've got people here who come to church and fill a pew and think, well, God must be honored by that. I'm doing okay. You know, you listen, you think, but you never act. You never do anything about it. Felix puts off a decision that I don't know he ever made. He kept putting it off and putting it off indefinitely. I don't know that he ever got around to doing anything about it. And his superior Agrippa is very similar. King Agrippa, Paul has to appear before him. Towards the end of the book of Acts, Paul is is just in and out of court. He's been arrested and charged with preaching the gospel, and he has to appear before all these officials. And he comes before King Agrippa, and again, he declares the gospel to Agrippa. And he says, listen, I'm just believing what the law and the prophets told me to. They said there was a Messiah on the way, and he's here, and his name's Jesus And I put my faith in him. And when he gets to the end of his sermon, at verse 27 of chapter 26, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? This was our text. Do you believe the prophets, king? I know that you do. King Agrippa says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Almost got me, Paul. 
That was a close one. You think with just one little sermon, you're going to talk me into that? And Paul says, I don't care if it takes me a short time or a long time. My desire is that you'd be like me. That you would put your faith in Jesus Christ, that you would be obedient to him. Again, Agrippa, almost persuaded. And both of these guys are reminiscent of Pilate. Pilate, before whom Jesus appeared, who tried to stay neutral on Jesus, who said, I'm going to wash my hands of this matter, this is on you. You are guilty of his blood, not me. I give you Barabbas, you can put Jesus to death. That's your fault. Pilate wanted to remain neutral. All these guys, they want to ride the fence. They want to stand somewhere in the middle. And maybe you do too. But here's the difficult truth. Here's the whole point of this sermon this morning. When it comes to this question, what will you do with Jesus? There is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. You cannot stake out a place in the middle. There is no neutral ground. At the end of the day, to postpone, to waffle, to hesitate on Jesus is no different than rejecting Jesus outright. And if you come and you sit in these pews week by week, and you know what you're supposed to do in order to be obedient to the gospel, and you don't do it, you are no different than the Jews who rejected Jesus, and you are no different than Judas who betrayed Jesus, and you are no different than Saul who persecuted Christians. That is not an easy truth to communicate, but we must communicate it. If we're being honest with the gospel, if we're being honest with ourselves, there is no daylight between somebody who puts off Jesus into infinity and somebody who rejects Jesus. There's not. You've got to make a choice. C.S. Lewis once said, you can't just accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. Not because of the things that Jesus said about himself. Yeah, I mean, he taught about some good ethical things, but he also said that he and the Father are one. He made claims to divinity. He said he was the Son of God. And if he said those things, he's either a bold-faced, pathological liar, or he's totally off his gourd insane, or he's Lord. There's no middle ground. You can't say, I'm going to come... Be, be at church for a little while and hang out with Jesus and hang out with church folks, but Monday through Saturday, I'm going to do whatever I want. If Jesus is who he says he is, then you cannot stand in the middle. Now, here are some verses I want to share with you that really ought to get our attention, and we can't gloss over them. These verses ought to startle us. I'll be honest with you. The first is the statement of Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you're not on my team, if you haven't confessed faith in me, if you haven't been baptized into my name, if I am not the Lord of your life, then you are my enemy. You can expect death and destruction. You've got to figure out where you stand, church. Where, where do you stand, Christian? What will you do with Jesus? Whose side are you on? 
Have you staked out a position with Christ? Are you standing beside him? Are you, have you been obedient to the gospel? Do you seek to live by his standard according to his will? As, have you submitted your life to his reign and his rule and his lordship? Or have you not? Another verse, 2 Thessalonians 1.8. Paul is talking about when Jesus will come, when he will reappear in flaming fire alongside his angels, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. Okay. I can abide that. Those who do not know God. You know, those who, they're just so sinful and so wicked and so rebellious and they don't have anything to do with God. Okay, I get that. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Those who heard and they heard and they heard and they listened and they came to church and they thought about it and they thought about it. And they sat in the pew week after week. But they never obeyed. They never said yes. They never made Jesus Lord of all. What will you do with Jesus? What do you need to do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. When it comes to the gospel, close doesn't, close doesn't count. You cannot expect extra points for getting close. Close only counts, as I've heard people say, in horseshoes and hand grenades, not in obedience to the gospel. Yes, God is gracious and merciful and compassionate Abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger. God is so generous and merciful and gracious. And I really could cry if I began to think about all the ways that God has been good to me in his life. Truly, my cup overflows. Can you say the same, church? God is good. And he's the reason we're all sitting here alive. That's our God. He's generous and gracious. But you cannot, you cannot presume upon his grace. If you have not been obedient to him, if you haven't done something that he's clearly asked you to do, you cannot do that. You place your soul in great jeopardy. We dare not presume upon his grace. When we haven't followed through with a simple command. To repent of our sins, to confess Jesus as Lord, to be baptized so that those sins can be washed away. And then to live like it. To do things in keeping with repentance. To truly submit our lives to his lordship. It does not matter how successful you become in this life. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how nice your car or your house is. It doesn't matter how many fun experiences or vacations you go on. Or concerts you see. It doesn't matter how successful you're kids become, how good they become in any number of sports. It doesn't matter how smart they are, if they make great grades in school. It doesn't matter how many friends you have and how great your social life is. If Jesus is not your Savior and also your Lord, your life will have been a tragedy, a failure. A wildly successful life devoid of Jesus will in the end be counted a tragedy. But a, a deeply tragic, deeply flawed life surrendered to Jesus will be counted a success.
Jesus makes all the difference. Jesus saves. And there are only two types of people in this world. The saved and the lost. Don't leave this building lost. If you have yet to submit your life to Jesus Christ in baptism, don't leave those doors without doing that. If you have taken an honest look at your life and you've discovered, you know what, here lately I've just been a pew filler. And I come and I pay lip service to Jesus, but from Monday to Saturday my life is characterized by pride and selfishness and lust and anger and half-hearted, lackluster devotion to Him. Yeah, I've made Jesus my Savior, but I'm just using Him for His blood. I haven't made Him my Lord. I need to surrender my life to His Lordship. You need to come today. I'm praying for revival this morning. I am. We've got elders in the room back here. If there's something amiss in your spiritual life, you'd rather go back there and talk to them. I pray that there's a line at the door for you to get in, just to talk to them, to pray with them, to tell somebody that you're struggling and that you need help. I pray that we'll have at least one come today who wants to be baptized. I pray that we'll have at least one come today who wants to confess sin and say, I've been struggling and I need the prayers of my brothers and sisters. What will you do with Jesus today? Neutral you cannot be. Pick a side right now as we stand and sing.